talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. That's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong doesn't matter all right welcome everybody to another episode of the weird history eerie tales podcast i am your host moses and with me to my left is my brother josh hey and sitting directly in front of me is achi <laughs> and this still feels weird I, like i know like every opening of a podcast everyone has their own response when you introduce <laughs> it, it, it just feels one? weird no me like well i mean I don't know if you feel the same. I feel weird. Like I don't know what what else to say. Just hey. Well, we well this is the weird hey. podcast. You know, we have weird in our name, so I guess it goes with it. It's just I guess. awkward. <laughs> and then Achi's having a stroke. Apparently, hey, bro, you okay? Well, you know, we're gonna set the mood for our our episode today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so today we're gonna be talking about scientists, more specifically, mad scientists. Like when we think, you know, like when we think of science, science is basically a window into the future. Science has helped us with everything that we use from computers to fucking spaceships and antennas to flashlights, whatever we to need, whatever medicine, we use. To it's discoveries all in the human anatomy and whatnot. But every, every once in a while, every once in a while, there's this asshole that does it for no good, that uses science for evil. Or just self-pleasure, because curiosity killed the cat, man. I forgot the saying of it, but that's not the entire saying. Oh, there's more to it? There's more to it. I'm Ooh. almost positive. Like, like, like another saying that's, that's completely off topic, but another saying that I love that has been misconstrued is there's this, that, that something that people always say about family. that okay. um, uh, What is it? Blood is thicker than water. You know how they say that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Blood is thicker than water. Like your family should come first. Right, Blood right. is thicker than water. Yeah. Well, that's com- they bastardized that, that whole saying. They bastardized it and they flipped it what 180. It the saying is supposed to be the water of the womb. I mean, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the moon, which means the blood of the covenant, which means us, yeah. friends, our blood is way thicker than the water of the womb, which means your friends are stronger your like friends family? mean more than family because you choose your friends. Uh-huh. You don't choose your you don't choose who you're born to, but uh, you choose the people around you. So it's basically a total opposite. Yeah, so they bastardize the shit out of Damn. that. That's a nice fun fact for you guys. Hey, oh, he stole your job, yeah, bro. That's my he job. Ah, Mister Fun Fact. Well, since you stole my fucking intro, oh. <laughs> you're welcome. What does it mean to be mad? We often think of this term to be synonymous with the word angry. But by definition, they are not. Mad is defined as being mentally disturbed, deranged, insane, and demented. But what really makes you mad? It's the idea to cross spiders with goats, injecting embryonic stem cells into a fetal mice to create a super mice? Or is it adding ketchup to your pizza? In my opinion... You must it's die. fucking insane. How dare you? Go <laughs> to fuck hell. me, right? But anywho, it is usually associated with someone who cannot distinguish fantasy from reality mixed with uncontrollable, impulsive behaviors. That being said, Archie, it's all yours. So, John C. Lilly, probably a person that you have not heard of, 
But you, it is more than likely that you have seen or heard of his works through aquariums, books, TV shows, and even video games. John C. Lilly was born in a well-off family on January 6th of 1915 in St. Paul, Minnesota. Since he was born, he had a profound fascination with science. At the age of 13, he would experiment with chemicals and sometimes even create makeshift explosives that he would use outside of his home. He was making mini bombs? He was making mini bombs. Bang, and, bang. And his parents were like, hey, he's just a boy. Let him do his thing. What, what era was this in, though? If it was like the... It was the 1915. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, boys is mean boys. They just wanted him the fuck out of the house. Hell, yeah. His peers would even playfully nickname him Einstein Jr. Despite his father's wishes to have his son attend an Ivy League school to become a banker, he went to California Institute of Technology to study physics under many notable scientists in the field. He was a super nerd. This propelled him into studying many fields in both science and medicine, having attended Dartmouth Medical School and the University of Pennsylvania. He made many contributions in the field of biophysics, neurophysiology, electronics, computer science, and neuroanatomy. But nothing fascinated Dr. Lady more than the subconscious. Do you guys know that part in uh, Stranger Things Part 1 where Eleven is underwater in this huge tank? Mm-hmm. And they the, the gang even tried replicating the same thing in a gym like within a kiddie pool? Yeah. Dr. Lily was the inventor of that contraption. And it's called an isolation tank. Believe it or not, there are countless of these things around the U.S. And just around... You know, us here in Linwood, there are 18 establishments I actually, that are in full function within a 20-mile radius. I actually want to go and try an isolation tank. Your favorite podcast host, now that you mentioned it, Joe Rogan has even have his personal he, his own. one made in his own place. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He's a huge... So, one of the things I've heard from people who use it or use isolation tanks... They say it's useful if you don't mind getting in your head. Yep. If you're not afraid of being by yourself and thinking, then it's a good thing for you. Only because, let's say you have a, let's say like for like like I'm gonna use Joe Rogan for example. He's a comedian. He's a podcaster. He he works for UFC. UFC. So he has a lot of shit on his mind. Whether it's whether it's like oh what am I gonna do tomorrow? Am I gonna do interview this? Am I gonna interview that? So what he does is he gets high goes in the isolation tank and then he settles his thoughts this is what i'm gonna do first how am i gonna do it cool 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 and he's done that's what it's good for and and it's also good if if you're writing a book or if you have something to do you just go in the isolation tank there's nothing no light no nothing and you're just in your head thinking about it and it helps you rearrange your thoughts and it helps you just be by yourself for a good However long you want to do it, 45 minutes to an hour. Mm -hmm. So, he kind of mentioned the point of these bougie-ass hot tubs. But the inspiration for the isolation tank came from experimentation in trying to crack the behaviorist model. And this model states that people learn through external behaviors. Let's take a baby, for example. Eventually, the baby will learn to walk, talk, eat, and so forth by means of positive or negative reinforcements basically in a way 
we can physically observe these things. Dr. Lilly was like, fuck that. What if we isolate everything except the brain? Does our lack of external stimuli hinder our ability to learn? And so he embarked on a journey, invents, invented something that was sort of a device that can make this happen. And so in 1954, he created the isolation tape. To give you a visual of what these tanks look like, I want you to picture a large tub with a rounded out lid. And this tub is filled with, you know, up to the brim with water and salt that is heated to a perfect temperature. The salt in the water is used to allow the person to flow ultimately to the point that there is as if they were not to experience anything around them. They were as to feel as if they are floating in space without any sensation at all. Dr. Lilly's first time in the tank, he experienced an outer-worldly experience. Literally, he created a world within his mind with visuals and imagery that felt so real as if he believed himself that he was presently there. He was obsessed with his invention, but he felt limited in his, in his experiences. He felt that his mind, his own mind, was limiting him, and he wanted more, and so he got more. What started off as a physiological experiment turned into a psychedelic ex obsession. He experimented with drugs going from LSD to ketamine, and the things that he discovered changed his life forever. He was introduced to outerworldly beings self-proclaimed as what they were known as the Earth Coincidence Control Office, which stand for ECHO for short. Basically to let him know that they were in charge of earthly matters and making sure that the human race was doing what they're supposed to do in order to further progress human life. But not only that, he also had in contact with other beings known as the Solid State Intelligence, which was known as SSI for short, who were unlike the Echo in every way. They wanted to do away with all earthly beings and completely wipe out the human race. These were the higher-ups, and Dr. Lilly was basically their messenger. There wasn't one moment that he did not want to be in that tank under the influence of either LSD or ketamine. He has written a few books reflecting on his ex experiences and then in September 30th of 2001, he died in Los Angeles at the age of 86. Although his research was heavily neglected by scientific community, his legacy still lives on in the subconscious of every isolation tank in the world. So, not only did he do this, he was also the one that was in charge of letting the world know, hey, dolphins are actually more intelligent than you think. Oh, So the person who stated that fact was actually this guy. He got obsessed with the whole tank thing. Because you know what? Let's see if we could communicate with these mammals. Because, you know, they're always in tanks. Let's, let's see if we could message with them and stuff. And so he would put them in a sort of isolation take for themselves. And he found out that the clicks that they made was actually their language that they had. And depending on how many clicks they've done, they would respond to the messages that they were, like, you know, being spoken to. Like, if they asked questions, they would, you know, explain back in those clicks. How much LSD do you think he took? A lot. <laughs> For him to be like, wait, so I was clicking noisy. I was clicking noisy here. She's like, wait, are they talking to me? So much. It's presumed that 
you know, for a while, the government was funding these programs. And so he got a lot of LSD from the government. Well, yeah, the government was making fucking buckets of LSD for uh-huh. all these so, for all these experiments they were doing, uh-huh. I think, in the 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. and 70s. Mm-hmm. And after a while, and then once he started talking about Echo and SSI and all that stuff, the government was like, you know what? We're going to cut you off now. <laughs> but the reason why he, he kind of prolonged these experiments for so long, because even then, even when the government was like, yep, stop it. Like, we're done. Like, you're going crazy, dude. Even then, his family was really, really well off because I think both his parents owned businesses and whatnot. And they were the ones that funded his whole education. Mm-hmm. They also funded the projects that he was doing on his own. Oh, shit. So, so he, he was, so he was he, able to do this for a very long time. And you can see in his transition, he went from like, you know, this person who looked, you know, very well put together and whatnot to kind of like a hippie nice throughout the life and so when he starts saying to be insane and there's videos out there of him you know saying quotes and just saying speaking out his mind of the things that he experienced and a lot of people like really take this to the next level and start putting visuals and like kind of our worldly music behind it and it sounds insane and people love this shit i actually want to do an isolation, an isolation take yeah Here's the thing, because I saw an interview on Vice with Joe Rogan, and this guy, he, he did a lot of interviews <laughs> with a lot of other people who did isolation takes, and he's like, what's the, per, what's, the, what's the point of all this? Why do people do isolation takes? And like you mentioned, a lot of people use this as a way to kind of prioritize shit. That, and also get a reset, because in a world where like technology is everywhere, and yeah. we kind of like, want that constant stimuli, the stimulus of everything, eventually... You're going to kind of be overwhelmed and you're going to want to just, you know, get away from everything and just get a hard reset on yourself. It's called just rubbing one out, bruh. Reset after the climax. No, you're external stimuli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you want self-stimulus, but without having to do anything and just using your brain to create that. Yeah. And this guy, he said, I think the longest one that he's done that I've seen was eight hours. Eight hours of being in eight hours of being in that tank. Yeah, yeah. Cause they say if you're if, if it's done right, you don't feel anything. anything. You don't feel yourself in the water. You don't feel any, and it's pitch black. So if you, even if you open your eyes, it's there's just, nothing. So you, just, it's just your thoughts. It's just you and your conscience. You. Holy yeah, shit! It's just you. Like tr- try even doing this. Try sitting still for as long as you can, not looking around anywhere, not moving, not yawning, not doing anything. I remember before I was able to do that pretty consistent. Now it's just like, if I sit still for like five seconds, I, I immediately want to like turn and look around or something. I want to just... Yeah. Because you're just like, there's all this stuff everywhere, happening everywhere. And you just kind of want to see it all. Sergei Sergeyevich Brukhono was born in 1890 and died in 1960. Brukhono was a Russian biomedical and technologist and is credited with aiding the advancement in Russian open-heart surgery. He designed and constructed one of the earliest heart-lung machines and paved the way to the first experimental operations on heart valves. His work landmarks the field of cardiac surgery. So what makes him a mad scientist? Well, it was his experience that brought horror to the life of animals. Brugeno was an impatient man. It was said that he hated experimenting with deceased animals and wanted to experiment with the living. In the 1930s, Brugino and his team of scientists took a series of experiments in which they decapitated 
a canine and kept the poor dog alive. What, wait, what? That was their thing? That was uh-huh. their thing, dude. So this was done by connecting the head to an air blood supply apparatus. The head of the canine would still react to external stimuli. When banging the table near the to- uh, when banging the table near the dog's head, it will flinch. When shining light onto his eyes, it will squint. The isolated head can live for hours before dying. The whole experiment was filmed and named Experiments in the Revival of Organisms and can be found and watched on YouTube. Well, you could you could watch this shit right now? Yeah. Really? If you just see the head just reacting to these different stimuli, it's crazy, dude. You know what's crazy? It blinks. That makes, that makes a lot more sense now since the first, I mean, it was pushed back again, but the first head transplant was going to be done by a Russian doctor. So they've been trying to do this shit since the 30s. Mm-hmm. Brugeno also worked on another gruesome experiment in which he takes the life of a dog for 10 minutes by draining its blood completely. Within these 10 minutes, the body is connected to the heart-lung machine, which slowly returns the drained blood into the circulation of the animal. After a couple of minutes, the heart fibrillates and the normal rhythm is produced again. After 10, after 10 days of recovery, the dogs are said to live a healthy, but in my opinion, traumatic life. Wait, so what, is, so what they would do is they would just get a live dog, drain its body, Leave the body for 10 minutes, bloodless for 10 minutes, and then slowly reinsert the blood into the body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought, like, can can somebody live with no blood if it wasn't, like, actually, no, it, no, no, never mind. And then we were, we were talking about this earlier because I saw the video that he was watching. I'm like, I saw the same one, except it didn't have his doctor's name. It had the doctor that I was going to talk about right now. I was like, what? But it makes perfect sense because in around that same time era that he was talking about or when this all happened, the doctor that I'm going to talk about, Vladimir Demikov, also did experiments related to that. So I'm thinking either they worked together or he got inspired by his work and or decided they, to or do this stuff. Oh yeah, or they, they knew, knew of each other. But so, like I mentioned, the, the doctor that I'm going to talk about is now Vladimir Demikov. And Dr. Demikov was born in a rural town in Moscow in July of 18 of 1916. Although he was born in an extremely poor family, his mother made sure that he and his siblings went to uh, went on to receive the very best education. In 1934, he was enrolled to the University of Moscow as a biology major and thus began his fascination with science. On 1937, he invented the first mechanical cardiac assist device that allowed a dog's heart to pump freely outside of a dog's body for five hours. The Russian biology department was baffled by his discovery. Now keep in mind, this is the 1930s, so allowing a donor heart to pump freely like this was thought of to be completely impossible. Demokov got so much crap from his colleagues and professors about this that it was a full of shit, basically. But this is only the beginning. After being the first person to have ever conducted an experience successfully, he went on to see what else he can learn about the dog's anatomy and function. In, the ni- in 1940, he graduated from the University of Moscow, but instead of starting to work in the field and starting to pay off those $100 student loans they probably had at the time, he decided to stay as a researcher and was given the position as an assistant in the Department of Physiology. However, his passion 
had come to an abrupt stop when World War II hit and was and he was ranked uh, lieutenant and was placed in a field evacuation hospital as a pathologist. Dude, it was so bad in the war for Russian soldiers that so many of them had died on the field to the point that Russia was pretty much running out of men. So they arrested everyone and anyone who was an able body. And so many of the patients that came into the hospital weren't actually people who were in- injured by enemy soldiers, but instead were self-inflicted injuries. Just, just so that way they could avoid the war. Of course, Dr. Demikov knew of this and knew that self-injuries made in order to escape the war were punishable by death. So they knew that the injuries that you made to yourself, they would immediately kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And so the doctor decided to keep his mouth shut and tried his best to make sure that the injuries did not look as if they were self-inflicted in order to avoid from being caught. Once the war was over with the hap you know, he happily continued on through his research. And let me tell you, this guy wasted no time at all. Since he was free from the treacheries of the war, he has made quite a few discoveries and significantly made a name for himself. Now, let me list a couple of his accomplishments. In addition to the artificial heart discovery in 1937, he also included these. 1946, he discovered the world's first heterotopic heart transplant into the chest. Again in 1946, the world's first heart-lung transplant. 1947, the world's first uh, lung transplant. 1948, the world's first liver transplant. 1951, the world's first uh, orthotopic heart transplant. 1952, the world's first mammary coronary uh, anatomicis. And in 1954, this is what he's known for the most, the world's first tryhard head transplant. So not a lot of people critique him for this because it wasn't literally like I take a head from something else, head from something else, and switch him out. It was the same body's head, right? So this guy, it's a pretty touchy subject because it revolves around the area of ethics. In 1954, he was able to successfully attach a dog's head into another dog. Now, one thing that you need to know about Demikov is that he was a pretty bold man. At first, his experiments, he wanted to see what else he could, you know, keep alive. Prior to the two-headed dog experiment, he was curious to see if a te- decapitated dog's head was able to stay alive through the type of machinery, which is what Josh just explained. And to much of anyone's surprise, it actually worked. And so the dog's head was able to stay alive artificially for pretty much hours. Not only that, but the dog was reacting to his surroundings as Dodd's as Josh mentioned in the video that I, I saw, including to what Josh seen, not only was there like, was a hammer like, you know, because at, at the video that he seen, the hammer was being clicked far away from the dog's head, but the one that I saw after that, it was on the, it it was was, on the dog's head. It, <laughs> actually, no, nah, it was like right <laughs> next to it. And you could see the, the amount of, you know, the dog being scared because from far away, it kind of twitched, but really close up, it started moving profusely. So it was crazy how much, you know, a severed dog's, head could react to all these external things you know and so now does it say that did the dog live for that long no he said it was a few hours right? a few hours yeah just a few hours yeah 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 didn't live that long but to be living at all is crazy to be thinking about especially in that time when you know all these things were being discovered you wouldn't think that much of this would even work but reading more into it uh they're saying that 
he kind of lied. It wasn't hours, it was seconds? It was minutes, not hours. Oh, really? But, yeah. Well, sneaky Russians, man. <laughs> you never <laughs> trust those <laughs> fucking Russians. <laughs> so, on top of that, this led to even bolder experiment. And as I mentioned, attaching these severed dog's heads into another full-grown dog. Much like the dog head experiment, both dogs, as you can say, were reacting to everything as if, a matter of fact, they were being able, they were able to actually eat and drink properly as any other dog would. Fuck. So there's pictures and videos of, you know, th- this kind of two-headed dog given a plate of water and food and both of them drinking and eating the food. Two-headed dog. Two-headed dog. So if, I want you to picture this. It's a full-grown dog, okay? I think it looked like a German Shepherd of some sort. And then on top of it had like a tiny puppy literally right behind its neck. That's fucked. Why couldn't it have been on the side? Nope. Right behind it. And then uh, there's make it, a, look, make it look like a chimera. There's a few of them that was just a dog's head. And there's another one that had a dog's head plus, you know, it's two well, limbs. So they tried this on more than one fucking dog? So he experimented with more than just one dog on this stuff. It's a whole fucking series, you know. Bro. What the fuck? crazy eventually the committee of soviet ministry of health deemed these experiments could be completely unethical and forced him to cease continuation of his quote-unquote bizarre experimentation but i look man the first 60 dogs were like fuck it okay you're doing it in the name of science <laughs> but the 61st one the fuck you doing <laughs> but i mean you know although his legacy will always make him known as the guy who created the two-headed dog he will forever be recognized by the science community for his discoveries and making the impossible possible. Damn, imagine. So this dude did. So basically, he created these procedures that over time has probably saved millions and millions and millions of lives. And the thing, the first thing that pops up when they talk about him is like, yeah, isn't that Russian dude that did the two-headed dog thing many times? True. So right now, you heard Archie and my brother. They've been talking about scientists who weren't mad. They weren't. They took science a little too well, not too far, but f- further than they had gone at that time. From from that time, yeah. I'm gonna talk about a piece of shit. <laughs> this dude was a piece of shit, and I'm talking about the one and only. Shiro Ishii. Shiro Ishii. So, Dr. Ishii, he studied medicine at Kyoto Imperial University in Japan and was a microbiologist by trade. He spent his professional career as a medical officer in the Imperial Japanese Army, beginning as a surgeon in 1921 and by 1945, reaching the position of of Surgeon General. To attain that pinnacle, Ishii left behind a trail of human blood, body parts, and entrails and committed the worst atrocities that human civilization has probably ever and will ever see. He did the most unthinkable shit to people. Now let me stop you right there. I heard this part in your previous podcast. I remember vividly I was in Mexico listening to this crap. 
And I was afraid of anyone else walking by and listening to what I was listening to because the crap that this motherfucker did so is atrocious, unspeakable. Well, uh, it's not unspeakable because I'm about to speak on it. True. <laughs> but for those of you that are that are in the know, I'm talking about Shiro Ishii, the one and only Unit 731. He was basically the boss of Unit 731, for those of you that do, that know about Unit 731. For those of you that do not know, I will inform you on that in a little bit. So, early in his career, Ishii, he extensively researched the effects of biological and chemical warfare that took place during World War I. Dude, this guy was obsessed to see what the effects of certain things were on people. Yeah. He was obsessed with it. And he was working for the army, and the army was like, "Yeah, be obsessed with it. Learn as much as you can, because we're trying to, we're trying to be the powerhouse in the world. You know, we're trying to get an edge up on everybody." And at that time, it was the 1930s. You know, there were no fucking drones or jets or whatever. So the only thing that you could do that that was like some weapon of mass destruction shit was biological and chemical warfare. Mm-hmm. So they're like, "Yeah, go ahead, go, learn as much as you fucking can," and he did. And in 1932, he was actually hired to head up the Biological Warfare Division. This guy got so good at his job, at learning as much as he can, the Japanese made him the head of that division. This dude was a weird guy, too, by the way. When when he was in school, he would grow his own... Weed. No, not even weed. He would grow his own... um, like little by like little like masses of bacteria on plates and keep them as pets. What? Like he would create like you know like if you would leave bread out like mold would come out and then yeah, yeah. he would leave he would keep those as pets just because he like oh I created something out of fucking nothing. He was obsessed with this shit, Damn. and for for the Japanese army he was the perfect guy to fucking be in charge of this shit. So his mission well, it was a secret mission. He was supposed to experiment on human test subjects at a secret prison camp. And in the mid-30s, around 1935, 1936, some of those people he was experimenting on escaped, and they ratted on Ishii. But they ratted to the Japanese government. The Japanese government knew Ishii was doing this shit. So what did they do? They closed shop. They didn't disband the division. They just closed shop. Oh, we need to close it down. They closed it down and moved them. They moved them to Japan. More specifically, Pingfang, which is an area in the city of Harbin. And again, they kept Ishii as director. So funded by the Japanese government, Ishii had more than 150 buildings constructed across a huge compound covering over two miles and able to house up to 400 prisoners. The prison camp, this place, but specifically the prison camp, it was known as Unit 731. So then, when it was in China, right? Yeah. When it was in China, was it known as... No, it was, it was a secret prison camp. Oh, okay. But then when they moved it... They called it Unit 731. No, this, this area was called Unit 731. But... If you're experimenting on people and you have this fucking two mile 
wide, long, fucking area with 150 buildings. You're not going to keep that secret. Like, this is not. So, what did they do? They made a front. They did. And they a named whorehouse, it. A brothel. And they named it <laughs> the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department. Those sons of bitches. No one's going to know what the fuck they're doing. And if anybody asks, they're just researching on contagious diseases in water supplies. That's what they were doing in this big-ass two-mile, 150-building area. What, what the fuck is this place? Oh, we're, you know, it's we're just trying to see what contagious diseases could be in water. We're trying to help you. Yeah. Oh, carry on then. So because it was so big, they were called unit, there's units. units yeah. You know, this is this. So from 1942 through 1945, Dr. Ishii, like I said earlier, he unleashed a barrage of the most shocking, cruel experiments done on human beings. Not, not even, like, let alone the civilized world, but humankind has ever known. He thought up of many hideous medical experiments spontaneously. Most of the shit he was doing was just off the cuff. And later on in this episode, I'm going to explain some of the shit that was done under Ishii's command. And remember, everything that was done, every person that died, every person that was raped, it was all done in the name of medical research. Rape? You're going to find out later. Meant to defeat Japan's wartime enemies. As the effects of Ishii's torture, they were studied and recorded. So Chinese prisoners. So this was during the, this was during, uh, fuck, I forgot what war it was. But Japan wasn't, Japan was, had its own war. So there were. They had its own, so Chinese prisoners of war, they were not the only te- test subjects imprisoned at Unit 731. Ishii wanted a wider, basically, he wanted more, a bigger, uh, not, for the lack of a better word, he wanted a more variety of quote unquote guinea pigs. So he had his military police round up criminals from the surrounding areas. He had anti-Japanese political prisoners in Unit 731. And he grabbed anybody who he thought was suspicious. If you were someone that he knew... Which can be anyone to him. If you were (laughs) suspicious, if he thought you were against Japan, if he thought you were colluding, if he thought you were like this political activist that was going to cause him some shit, he works for the government. He works for the army. Grab him. We need gotcha. to talk to him. It's, it was called the Second Sino-Japanese there War. There you go. It was during that war. That was that against war. The, the Chinese Empire. Yeah. Yeah. 1937-1945. So, so who did he think were these... So who... So these suspicious people, they weren't just soldiers. There were women, a lot of pregnant women, a lot of elderly women, a lot of elderly people, Children and even infants. Fuck this guy. They arrested thousands of victims and delivered them to Unit 731. And Ishii, he didn't give a fuck. He showed no mercy and didn't discriminate. He didn't give a fuck if you were tall, tall, short, big, old. Didn't give a fuck. Find an experiment for you. He experimented on 
every single one of his captives. So Unit 731 had a freezer that could be set to 50 degrees below zero. It was cold as shit. You love that place, right, Moses? <sighs> right now, I would. <laughs> Hands and arms were frozen to create frostbite. Some frozen limbs were thought to study the rotting of human flesh. Other victims were dehydrated to the point of death. Prisoners were shot in the stomach so the Japanese surgeons could practice removing bullets. Legs and arms were amputated without administering anesthesia. People were injected with seawater to determine if it could be used as a substitute for saline solution. Parts of livers were removed to determine how long a person could live with only a partial organ. Gosh. To study blood loss, some had their limbs amputated. Sometimes they would reattach body parts in the wrong area. Like, for example, a stomach would be surgically removed, and then the esophagus would be attached directly to the intestines. Just to see. What the Just fuck? like, fuck it. Yeah, just. Let's see. Yeah, just. <laughs> fuck, fuck it. Fuck of it. Like, fuck it. I have an hour to kill. Fuck it. Damn. To determine the length of time until death, subjects were placed into high-pressure chambers and were spun to death. A lot of them were, like I said, deprived of food and water. And a lot of these people were exposed to lethal doses of x-rays. They had x-ray machines that they would crank up. At full volume to see what the fuck would happen. Just to see what would happen. To determine the relationship between temperature, burns, and length of survival, prisoners were torched with flamethrowers, exposed to phosphorus or chloride gases. Some were injected with animal blood. Just let's see what happens. What? And some were just buried alive. Just like, fuck it, let's see what happens. Let's see how long this person could live. Viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens were created in the laboratory at Unit 731. That was their thing. Remember, were, were created? They were created. Shiro, that was his thing. This is what he was obsessed with. So above all else, that was the thing he wanted to do. He wanted to study pathogens, especially viruses and bacteria, so that prisoners could be injected with the bubonic plague, with anthrax, gangrene, typhoid, you name it, tuberculosis, syphilis, gonorrhea, dysentery, whatever the fuck. You would just inject on people to see what the fuck would happen. Just just in the name of science, just to see how would this person react to this certain thing. He would do unnameable shit that I'm going to name later in the episode. But also beginning in 1942, Unit 731 developed dispersion techniques for germ warfare via bio-warfare weapons, which were tested on civilians in Chinese cities. Bio-warfare weapons containing bubonic plague, anthrax, and other deadly diseases were dropped by airplanes in innocent residence areas just to see what the fuck would happen. Unit 731 bred 
plague infested fleas in their labs and devised flea bombs. I'm gonna get I'm gonna explain that into a little more detail later flea on. Bombs? Later on in the episode. The death toll estimated from these deadly pathogens released under this sick bastard's order. And I'm talking about Shiro Ishii. And he caused epidemics. The death toll count just from the deadly pathogen, just from the biochemical warfare. Not even what happened in 731. This is talking about outside units. Well, not outside unit 731 because they experimented on people in there too with this. But just in terms of biological and chemical warfare, between 400 to 600,000 people. In like a span of maybe 10 years. And keep in mind, this place held, what, 400 prisoners at a time? Yeah. Fuck, he just wiped out the whole prison, just got a whole new batch. And you know what's the craziest part? Most of the dead were Chinese. So I don't know how the Chinese government, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. Estimates of the total number of men, women, and children, and infants who were tortured and slaughtered. At Unit 731, some say could be as high as 12,000 in a place that housed 400. 400. What the fuck? Nearly 30% of those who died at Unit 731 were soldiers. Other unfortunates included Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders, and it's estimated that close to 200 American and British allies were I mean, also perished at this death camp. He was, he didn't give, like, he was heartless. At Unit 731, Shiro Ishii, he had a specific word that he would use to refer to the victims. And he would call them logs. Logs? Logs. L-O-G-S. Because also... One of the fronts was that unit that that whole area where they were at was also a logging company. So if people were walking in, or if pe- or, or if people were outside of this unit at a bar somewhere talking, and someone overheard them, they wouldn't they wouldn't talk about. Well, how they, many people did you fuck with? Yeah. Like, oh, how many logs? How many logs did you do today? Fifty. I mean, they were talking about logs. They were talking about human, human. people. Fucking a. And also, he named them logs because after he tor- after he tortured them, he had their bodies burned to ashes. That's what, after he would do whatever the fuck he needed to do, uh, I assume he would just burn them. Write a log on it. Oh, that that yeah, that's that would be even more sadistic. That yeah. that would be even more <laughs> heartless. And also to keep the mirage that Unit Seven Thirty One. Throughout his reign of terror, Ishii was praised by the Japanese government and was a decorated officer with a coveted Order of the Golden Kite. Hell no. Which is basically below the Order of the Golden Kite. It's just the highest military award that you could get. And this coveted Order of the Golden Kite, it was usually give, given to people for bravery, leadership, or command in battle. Fuck you. 
He had none of that. So the Japanese government, to keep the front, they offered him one of the highest awards that that government could possibly give. He's not, he's not the shit. He's a piece of shit. But thankfully, on August 5th, 1945, the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, surrendered unconditionally, which ended Japan's involvement in World War II, as well as the war with the Chinese. Immediately after surrender, the Japanese demolished Unit 731. We don't want proof that this ever fucking existed. Get rid of the evidence. Because they needed to erase the evidence that the Japanese government was involved with all the atrocities committed at this fucking death camp. The Japanese like, we do not want no one knowing what the fuck we were doing here. Ishii ordered the remaining 150 subjects to be executed. Bodies and body parts were buried inexplicably, inexplicably as the camp was being demolished. He was just shooting people left and right just to make sure no one was alive. The Japanese released thousands of plague-infested rats into the surrounding provinces. What the fuck? Because they were experimenting on everything. Then how the fuck are you going to try to kill? A th- if you have buildings full of rats, what's the easiest way to get rid of them? Open the door. They're going to fuck off on their own. They don't give a fuck where they go. Not only that, these rats were infected with the fucking plague. As a result, because of these rats that went off with plague. Uh-huh. And they also released a shitload of plague-infested fleas. They're saying around 30,000, an extra 30,000 Chinese died from the plague and other diseases over the following three years. So realizing he would be prosecuted for war crimes, Dr. Ishii faked his own death. Because he knew, like, I'm fucked. He faked his own death and went into hiding to evade justice. But he was found in 1946. Wrong. Bruh. He was found in 1946, and he was turned over to the American Occupation Forces for for interrogation. The U.S. was desperate to not have Ishii's knowledge of biological weapons to fall into the hands of Russia or any other fucking foreign power. And they also wanted to know, and, and the U.S. also wanted its own Germ warfare program that he made a deal with the U.S. So after his capture, Dr. Ishii offered to reveal every single detail of his experiments conducted at Unit 731 in exchange for complete immunity from all of the war crimes he committed. He said, I'll give you everything I fucking know, everything I've seen, everything I've recorded. And don't tell me it was granted. It was, of course. Immediately. The the U.S. government, they're like. We're a piece of shit. They're like, fuck, yes. Sign this. We're worse than that piece of shit. So the U.S. agreed to the plea bargain, which also included immunity for its top level members. So not only him, but his, his workers. Yep. Fuck. In addition 
to the promise of not being prosecuted for any war crime. These researchers were enticed with money and other gifts from the U.S. to share what was learned at Unit 731. Dr. Ishii was never punished for any of his crimes, and he ended up passing away at the age of 67 in 1960. The worst part, one of the, hor- one of the worst parts for me, was that many of Dr. Ishii's staff, which a lot of people dubbed the Devil's Doctors, they went on to obtain high-profile and influential careers in politics, medicine, and business here in the U.S. They took on leadership. They took on leadership roles in institutions such as the Japanese Medical Association, National Institute for Health, the National Cancer Center. Others secured high-level positions at pharmaceutical companies. The immunity deal granted to Dr. Ishii and members of his senior medical staff was kept secret from the public for years. This was also known as Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip is what the U.S. did during World War II. They grabbed all the scientists, from, from, especially from Nazi Germany and from Japanese, and said, look, We'll turn the other. We'll turn the other cheek. We never saw you. We never saw anything you did. If you tell us what the fuck you know, a famous, a famous, like what, like a famous case of this Operation Paperclip was a Nazi official. This dude used to he used to run um, um, a Nazi internment camp. So basically, what he would do is he would have Jews and like, other people working in this factory. And he would hang the slowest person in front of the factory. If today's Monday and I say I'm the slowest one on Tuesday morning, I'd be hanging at the factory to let you know if you know if you're fucking slow, you're gonna die. The US government had this piece of shit be in charge of NASA. What the fuck? What? He was in charge of NASA. Because he was a rocket scientist, and at that time. The Nazi scientists, rocket scientists, were the top of the food chain. This is part of Operation Paperclip, which I want to do an episode on, which is an interesting thing that I've always wanted to, you know, shit that the U.S. government kind of turned, just turned around. I'm pissed off now. I'm a piece of shit. I hate myself. So, remember, all of this was kept secret from the public for years. Yeah. Until the 80s. Until the 1980s, when details of these atrocities finally appeared in the media. And in 2001, a documentary titled Japanese Devils was released. And this documentary was created from first-hand accounts of the death camp by members of Unit 731 who had been taken prisoner by the by the Chinese and were later released. This documentary was made by those people. Snitches. Well, no, there, there were people that were taken in and oh, survived. Prisoners. Yeah, they were prisoners. Oh. To this day, to this day, Japan denies everything. Everything. Any of that. They just... denied about what happened at Union 731. 
it's either all that shit was exaggerated or it didn't happen at all. And the Chinese are still, obviously, they're still fucking bitter about that. They're like, dude, you killed so many of our fucking people for this dumbest shit. Japan's like, it wasn't us. We didn't do it. They're like, nani? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, 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 nani? Uh, fuck. <laughs> I don't know if I can top Wait, that, bro. You're not supposed to top that. Shiz- you want to top that shit? Nah, you know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. You I guess. That shiz- fuck you piece man. of shit, Moses. How dare you? Fucking nay. Well, I mean, this one's kind of gross, so brace oh, yourself. All right. Here we go. All right. So, Stubbins Firth, born in 1784, and you later... A, you have a lisp? No, no, it's F-I-R-T-H. Instead of saying first, it's Firth. That's His family had a lisp. Huh? His family Firth. had a lisp. Firth. So, <laughs> Stubbins Firth, born in 1784 and later died in 1820, was an American trainee doctor who was obsessed with a viral disease known as yellow fever. In 1793, there was an epidemic of this viral disease that took the life of 5,000 people in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Firth then later joined the University of Pennsylvania to study this fatal disease. His theory was that the yellow fever was not contagious. Now, what makes him mad? Well, Firth began experimenting with himself. He decided to bring himself into direct contact with bodily fluids from those who have been affected by the yellow fever. Ugh. Hold on, pause right there. If you notice something similar about his doctor and mine, when was he born again? Huh? When was he born again? When? Yeah. Uh, 1784. Okay, never mind. But, Why? Because your doctor went to University of Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. So did Dr. Lily, the hippie doctor. Uh, I was like, lots of correlation between me and you, bro. We didn't even do it together. Hey, great minds think alike, bro. Think. 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 Firth began the experiment by creating an incision on his arm and spreading the vomit, infected vomit, all over his open wound. Uh, he couldn't just grab, like, fucking saliva or something? No, Check this out. And then he poured the infected vomit onto his eyeballs. Dude, I'm starting to think this dude had, like, a <laughs> fetish. He had, like, a vomit kink. But, but wait, there's, there's, there's more. He fucked the vomit. This sick <laughs> son of a gun also tried frying the infected vomit and inhaling its fumes. fumes. Uh, okay, <laughs> like I would vomit <laughs> more after fucking smelling that shit. It's 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 worse. When realizing <laughs> he wasn't infected or sick, he drank the infected vomit undiluted. Dude, God was like, "Bro, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm fucking looking out for you." So Firth is a fifth fucking time, motherfucker. <laughs> so Firth then went on to prove his hypothesis even more by trying other bodily fluids. He would then smear blood, saliva, and eventually urine. Somehow he managed to avoid contracting this disease, proving his hypothesis to be right. Wrong. Unfortunately, the samples Firth used for his experiments came from the late stages of patients who were no longer considered contagious. Oh, dumb fuck. dumb fuck. So all of that was for essentially for nothing. 
So basically, he was like, look, let me prove to you this shit is not contagious. And he did all, all that. that shit and was like, see, I told you. I told you. And like the people looking at him were like, dude, like all this shit. It wasn't until later on, years later, where they. Oh. Yeah. But still. I, it's a lot funnier if you think, <laughs> if you imagine that he did all that shit and like a span of like 15 minutes. Right? He threw like the vomit in his. Ah, oh, shit's not working. And then he lit the fucking the vomit and then he fucking sniffed it. Fuck. And then he started throwing piss and shit all over his fucking wounds and shit. I mean, I wonder if he got <laughs> something else. I kind of gagged there. But, I mean, drinking, sniffing. Now, let me add something to this one because I read through about this guy. Oh, did you? Unless you're going to add into the more. No, that's about it. They later found out much, many years later that the reason why none of this worked is because it wasn't injected directly into his bloodstream. If that were to happen, he would have gotten infected immediately. But because he didn't do that. But he did, though, because he, he, cut, he cut himself and then he threw the vomit. Isn't that going to get in the bloodstream? No? Mm-mm. Because oh. it's the actual virus. It's not the substance itself, but the virus itself. Oh. Uh, yeah. And they're like, later on, scientists were like, oh, you will get infected if you were to inject it directly into your bloodstream. I wonder what happened to him. Like, I wonder if all this shit happened, like he experimented and everything, whatever, on a Friday. People over the weekend found out, you, you know, that nothing could happen. Uh-huh. I wonder how people treated him that Monday when he showed up to work. Like, there's this asshole who was fucking throwing was like, people's shit on himself. <laughs> He's walking around trying to get fucking, trying to sip people's water. Hey, can I get some? Keep it. Keep it. <laughs> it's all yours, man. Hey, can I get a bite? Nope, it's yours. Dude, Maybe that guy. That fucking guy. Just the whole vomit thing. The name of science, huh? Speaking of the name of science. Oh, my God. Here we go back. So, with Shiro Ishii, I'm going to explain some of the things that were done under Shiro Ishii's watch at Unit 731. Like you heard earlier, Unit 731, it started out as a research unit. They were legit investigating the effects of biological and chemical warfare and their effects on the human body. That's what Shiro Ishii was all about that's what he was studying that's what the government wanted him to study and that's what unit 731 and this whole thing was supposed to be a research unit but unit 731 went above and beyond by observing injuries and the lifespan of diseases on living patients this specific unit was called maruta M-A-R-U-T-A. So at first, at Unit 731, these patients, they were just volunteers of the Japanese Army. They were legit, they were legit being volunteered. But as the experiments got harsher and harsher, the supply of volunteers obviously dried up. So what did they do? They turned to Chinese POWs, and civilians to continue their work. And this is when shit started going downhill. So now that they're working with prisoners of war and not volunteers, the researchers just said, fuck it, and ramped everything up to 10. Vivisection, which is the practice of mutilating the human body, was done on live patients with no anesthesia. 
anesthesia just to see how the body would react. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese men and women, as well as children and elderly farmers, were infected with diseases such as the plague so they could basically be, hmm, all right, so that's what happens with this disease. That's what they were just fucking doing. If that wasn't bad enough, they would then remove their organs for examination before they died so they could study the effects of the diseases without the decomposition that occurs during death. So they would infect all these prisoners with diseases. And then without anesthesia, they would either chop off the arm to see what would happen, open them up and see their organs and remove it to see what this plague did to the organs before decomposition started. Fuck. Victims had their arms lopped off and reattached on opposite sides. Many had their limbs crushed and frozen while others had the circulation cut off just to see the, the progress of gangrene. They just wanted to see, like, what the fuck would happen. And that's basically what Unit 731 is. What the fuck's going to happen? Like so, they knew they were going to die. They just wanted to know how long. And how. And how. Yeah. Fuck. So finally, after they were done with the body, then would they kill the victim. After they found no use for the victim, then that's when they would kill them. Because remember, everything they're doing is to live victims, to see the effects of live humans. Because to them, when you're going to war, you're not going to war with dead people. You're going to war with humans that are alive. So let's see what the fuck is going to happen to those live humans. So after they were done, after they're like, fuck it, we have no use for them. Some would be shot. Others would be killed by injection. But for the majority of them, they were just buried alive. They were just thrown in the ditch, just covered in dirt, and just went on with their day. Now I want to talk about the rape and forced pregnancy at Unit 731. So female prisoners who were at, the, who were at an age to give birth, and they don't specify on the age. They don't say what was too young or what was too old. I didn't find that out. But when they would grab a prisoner and it was a female prisoner and they looked like she was at the age where she was able to give birth, she was forcefully impregnated so that weapons and trauma experiments could be done on them. More on that in a little bit. So after the prisoners were either infected with diseases, these pregnant prisoners, after they were infected with diseases, after they were exposed to chemical weapons, bullet wounds, crash injuries, whatever fucked up thing you could imagine, these assholes did on them, on these pregnant women. And the worst part of it all, they would open them up to see if there was any effects of the trauma on the fetuses. Well, obviously, they were still alive. So they would drop heavy objects on on women's arms. They would drop them on their legs. They would stab them. They would do a bunch of shit just to see what would happen to the fetus. That was the main thing. What would happen to the fetus? Now, like I said, 
they were also being experimented on with trauma. So since Unit 731 was started by the Japanese army, of course, they're going to try and see what new weapons they could come up with and what these new weapons are able to do to the human body. Like, for example, they would gather prisoners together and from different ranges. So let's say they, let's say they racked up five prisoners up against the wall, and then there's five soldiers. These five soldiers would shoot at them from different ranges just to see what the effects of the bullet would do. They would compare and contrast the wounds and the penetration deaths. And they did this with rifles, machine guns, pistols. They even tried it with grenades. They would throw grenades at different ranges to see what the effects were. Like, let's throw this grenade at his feet. What would happen? Boom. Okay, he's gone. Let's throw the grenade 10 feet from his feet. Let's see what happened. Boom. Oh, he's still gone. About 15 feet. Boom. Oh, shit. Only his legs are gone. He's still alive. What if we throw the grenade and it pops in the air? What would happen? Well, what would happen if you would run through a grenade explosion? That's what they would do with their weapons tests. So bayonets, swords, and even knives were studied in the exact same way. But for these experiments, the prisoners were tied down for this. They also studied the burn from flamethrowers. And they studied them on exposed and covered prisoners. So they'll see what would happen if you're wearing full clothes with the flamethrower. Boom. Okay, shit. That's what happened. Let's get this guy naked. Let's see what the effects are of the flamethrower when they have no clothes on. And they would try the same thing with nerve gas and blister agents. They would try nerve gas on people with clothes and try it with people without clothes just to see what the fucking effects were. And like I mentioned with um, the forced pregnancy, the, uh, those women, they would drop heavy objects on tied down prisoners just to see the effects of crushed injuries. A lot of these subjects, they were locked up and not given food just to see how long a human being could last without it. But they were given water. It just happened to be... starvation for food. No, it just happened to be seawater. That's what they were given. Oh, what the fuck? Here's water, drink it. They even fucked around with transfusion between man and animal just to see what would happen. They would line up a Chinese soldier with a horse. They'll take all the blood out from the human. They'll take all the blood out from the horse. And then all the horse's blood they would put back into the human just to see what would happen. Since they were studying everything about the human body and the effects of diseases and trauma, they also experimented on just limb Injuries. A physiologist named Yoshimura Hisato started experimenting with hypothermia. He would often have prisoners, arms, and or legs in a tub of water filled with ice and had them held until the limb had a solid coat of ice formed over the skin. Then the limbs were struck with a cane. Some eyewitnesses described the sound. Of someone hitting a plank of wood. He also tried methods for rewarming these frozen limbs. Whether it was just throwing boiling hot water on the frozen limbs. 
or just simply holding an o- holding that frozen limb over an open fire. And sometimes he would just say, fuck it, don't do anything, and let's see how long it takes for the body to just thaw out on its own. So Unit 731, their main goal was to create a weapon of mass destruction to use against their enemies. That was their thing. So Unit 731 infected prisoners with some of the most lethal pathogens known to man. Remember I talked about earlier about the flea bombs? Well, I'm getting to that. So some of these pathogens that would infect on people, one of them was Yersinia pestis, which causes the bubonic plague and the pneumonic plague. Their hope was that these plagues would spread from person to person and be used to deploy one person to depopulate entire areas. So their goal was to let's create the most lethal pathogen so we can infect one person, drop him off in the city, let's say like Linwood, and let that one person fuck up all of Linwood because this person will mess with this person and then two will turn to four, four will turn to eight. And in a matter of days, that whole, all of Linwood's gone. But to make these strains more lethal, they would have to create it. They basically super saiyan these fucking pathogens. So what they would do is they would monitor the patients for rapid onset of symptoms and quick progression. So they will have, like, let's say 10 people. If any of those 10 people pulled through, well, then fuck it. Five, six, seven is garbage because these people ain't sick enough. So we're not going to use them and they'd kill five, six, seven. So once they would see one of their victims get sick the fastest, they were then bled to death. And their blood was used to infect other prisoners. And then those prisoners, whoever got sick the fastest, then they would get bled to death. And they would repeat this cycle over and over again until they had the most lethal strain possible. They just wanted to see how fast. Because they wanted this shit working fast. Because if you're going to take out your enemies, you want to take them out like this. You don't want them, you don't want any chance of retaliation. Mm. And there was an account that a dying prisoner who was exposed to one of these strong strains. And as he was dying, you know, they were pumping out his blood through, I think it's called, I think it's pronounced the carotid carotid artery, which is like your throat. Well, because that's where they drink the blood from. Mm. So as the heart weakened, they couldn't pump out any more blood. So an officer wearing boots climbed onto the table and jumped on the dying victim's chest with enough force to crush the entire ribcage, therefore spurting the last of the blood out of the body. They wanted every last drop. So after they thought they had a strain strong enough of this plague, they then infected prisoners and unleashed fleas that would suck on their blood. So now these fleas are plague bombs. Mm-hmm. 
The fleas were then packed and sealed inside clay bomb casings. So on October 4th, in 1940, the Japanese deployed some of these casings. Each casing had over 30,000 fleas. And they deployed these casings over the Chinese village of, I think it's pronounced Kuzao. So a fine reddish dust settled over everything in this town and affected nearly everyone. But it's said that more than 2,000 of these villagers died following the attack. And that another 1,000 or so died in a nearby village after the plague was carried by sick workers. Mm. There were other chemical attacks from similar to this involving anthrax. But this killed around 6,000 people in that specific area. But like I said, finally on August of 1945, the Emperor of Japan read his declaration of surrender over the radio after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, as well as the Soviet army invading the Japanese army. And that's what it took for Unit 731 to stop Shiro Ishii and the atrocities of Unit 731. Yeah, let's move on to a brighter note here, man. Now I'm going to talk about something that isn't really a particular scientist but instead an experiment that is by far actually no not the most fucked up after hearing this <laughs> pretty fucked up okay so boys and girls get your cups of teas your favorite bank blankets and of course dim the lights and if you're listening to a room because it's about to be story time As I mentioned prior, the Second World War marked for creativity and experiments that walked a fine line of ethics in the, in the treatment of its test subjects, and this matter was no different. The Russian government was looking to matters that would allow their soldiers to get a better advantage on the battlefield. What was their secret weapon, you might ask? Sleep. Mimis? Mimis. It's so plain and simple, but brilliant, I'll tell you why. How can you fight your enemy if he's asleep? How can you kill your enemy if he's asleep? The next time they open their eyes, the only thing they're going to see is a glimpse of blood spewing out for their abdomen and maybe the grin of their Russian executioner. In the 1940s, a group of unnamed researchers held five prisoners of war locked up in an airtight chamber, closely monitored through only one-way mirrors and microphones that were integrated in the chamber. The researchers promised falsely, of course, that if they were to stay awake for 30 days, they would be granted their freedom. But if they did not abide by this simple request, they would be shot down immediately. Without much of a choice, they agreed to their questionable request. The researchers then proceeded to release a mixture of oxygen and experimental gas-based simulant, which they believed would help eliminate the need for sleep. The researchers, however, were aware that they needed to use extreme caution with this and the amount of gas that was leaked into the room because they knew if the test subjects were given too much, they would indeed die. They closely monitored their test subjects 
And to be quite honest with you, not much happened in the first four days. The prisoners spoke with one another calmly and only wished to do the experiment and come out alive. But by the fifth day, the conversation started to turn a little dark. The researchers would overhear them speak of their traumatic past and the general tone began to change, ultimately making each of the researchers feel really disturbed and unsettled. The subjects began to show severe paranoia against one another and they would whisper into the microphones in the attempt to out each other and gain the trust of the Russian researchers. At this point, the 30 days of containment seemed far and out of reach and the prisoners were willing to do whatever it took for them to be the first one free from this torture chamber. Nine days have passed when suddenly one of the prisoners starts screaming at the top of their lungs. Three hours of this consistent screaming continued by this one prisoner Researchers were astonished, not by the length of the screen, but by the eerie stillness of his companions. No one moved. No one talked. More importantly, no one reacted by their comrades' outbursts. After the third hour, his vocal cords were torn, but he continued to yell regardless, coming out with only the sounds of what can only be described as a screeching banshee in pure agony Fuck. once he was done two more prisoners proceeded to scream at the top of their lungs while the rest began to tear pages off of the books that were at their disposal and wipe their own feces on them and use the pages to cover the one-way mirrors while whispering into the intercoms the researchers began to monitor and alter the amount of gas released in the chamber. On the 14th day, there was stillness. No voices were heard and no movement was made. The researchers began to believe that their test subjects were either dead or turned to vegetable. They checked the amount of oxygen intake in the chamber and noticed that the amount consumed was equal to that of athletes breathing after a strenuous workout. Fuck. The researchers made an announcement over the intercom. Back away from the doors. We're going in to check the microphones in the chamber. Lie flat on the floor and if any sudden movement were to be made will result in being shot immediately by one of your guards. And if you comply to our request, we will grant one of you immediate release. Right before they're going to enter the chamber, one of the prisoners eerily replied, We no longer wish to be free. <laughs> oh, fuck. After much debate between the researchers and the government officials that were in charge of funding the experiment, they decided to finally open up the chamber on the 15th day at midnight. The researchers flushed the chamber out of the gas and supplied the prisoners with fresh oxygen. And what happened next was absolute horror. The test subjects were screaming louder and begging more than ever to be given the gas again. And when they opened the chamber, all but one were still alive. 
if that was even the right term to describe them. The researchers abided by the request and injected the gas back because they wanted that gas. They didn't want the oxygen. They noticed that past the fifth day, the food that was given to the prisoners has not been eaten, let alone touched, and chunks of meat from the corpse of the dead comrade were tossed all around the chamber and even plugged the drain holes of the chamber as well. About four inches of water mixed with feces and blood of their dead comrade were to fill the chamber. Four inches? Not only that, but the skin of many of the prisoners were torn, exposing blood vessels, organs, and even bones of some of them. It was apparent that the researchers, that these wounds were actually self-inflicted and they were ingesting their own flesh. The Russian government felt that enough was enough and ordered the prisoners to be released from the chamber and given immediate medical attention. Although the soldiers were heavily trained, many refused to enter the chamber. Once a few finally agreed, the doors opened and then all hell broke loose. All four that were left put up a fight and were restrained, but one of the four was strong enough to gut out through one of the soldiers' throats and bleed them to death. Another soldier had his testicles and leg severed by the teeth of yet another test subject. One of the researchers attempted to sedate them and injected morphine equal to 10 times the normal dose that would be put on a human, and this still proved to be impossible to sedate him. However, after two minutes of consistent screaming, this one test subject immediately passed away. The other three were alive and were taken immediately into urgent care. In the process, the two whose vocal cords still worked were screaming and begging to be placed back in the chamber with the gas. One of the three were close to tearing off the restraints and have successfully turned off through most of this four inch restraint. All three subjects undergone severe medical attention on the request by the subjects that they were not to be placed under any anesthetics. The doctors attempted their best to make sure that their flesh was repaired as best as possible. The nurses assisting the procedure were horrified at the smirks and twisted looks given by the prisoners. It was as if they took pleasure on the pain that was put on them. There was a face of arousal and one of the subjects even requested to write on paper, keep, keep cutting. cutting. One of the surgeons operating on them. Another subject even faintly whispered, I must be awake. After much deliberation between the surgeons, researchers, and the government officials, the officials requested to put them back in the chamber with the gases, even though the researchers wanted to dismiss the experiment immediately. The officials did not care, and so the subjects were placed back into their home. The commanding officer who made this request ordered that not only were the remaining subjects placed in the chamber, but to also include three other researchers 
to be placed in the chamber with them as well. Oh, fuck. One of the three researchers drew their gun and shot the commanding officer point blank. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed, as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled to the room. He yelled, I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you. He screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? He demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all. Begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence, paralysis, and when you go into a nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. Their EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out, claiming so nearly free. Fuck. Now, I am happy to announce this is a, fake. Fake. This is a fictional story. Oh, is it? Yeah. Fuck. I'm, I'm, <laughs> obviously. I'm not obviously, but uh, hopefully. It, hopefully. Was. It came out in, I think, what, I think it was Creepypasta. With yeah, I, I was going to say, like, what Creepypasta? Yeah. What Creepypasta bastard wrote there? I used to, remember how remember I was obsessed with Creepypasta for, for a while? Yeah. Fuck. Creepypasta, man. It came, that story came out there, I think it was 2010 or something like that. No, but this is... It's fake, bro. It's all fake. This this one was fake. <laughs> all the other ones are not. Fuck. You know, seven thirty one. I wish that one was fucking fake. Japan thinks it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck, man. Do you guys have anything else to add before we fucking end this episode? Josh, I was, I was not laughing. Well, yeah, I was laughing at the thought when you said they were giving severe medical attention i just pictured in my head a nurse going i'm gonna kill the shit out of you <laughs> like doing it like real angry i'm gonna give you the shit out of this ivy <laughs> but if no one has anything else to add you guys could find some of these pictures find are they are y'all ready for the see, to see these pictures i mean some of these experiments we could show you for sure are yeah. y'all ready for 731 you guys could see some of these pictures. Well, all these pictures, everything, every time we mention pictures or videos or something, you can find us on our Instagram at the Weird History Eerie Tales Pod. And if no one has anything else to add, as always, we are the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. Dun, dun. <laughs>